speech. So, <laughs> lovely. Thank you. Well, is that funny? I found that quite emotional. <laughs> Thank you, Brian. I'm, I mean, Brian is so... Oh, well, there's so many things that encourage me. I could go on all morning. I probably will, by the way, if you don't know me. Um, but just knowing Brian and staying at his house overnight and just remembering the story in your life, and you're such a great testimony, your generosity and your kindness and just the fruit of, of the Spirit in your life. And uh, I'm just... I'm, I mustn't get into detail, but people are whispering... Someone told me, Teresa, about someone, and I thought, Really? And I thought, oh, it's wonderful to see them there. And it's just so much encouragement comes back. I might not remember your name, but I usually remember a lot of detail about your life. So be careful. I could usually remember all the biographical details. Then the name comes up at the bottom of the screen. <laughs> so I do remember who you are, but I might not get the name right. But it's great to be with you this morning. And it's a privilege to finish off your study in James. And it's a bit chunky what we're going to look at this morning. It's going to, I hope, it's going to keep you awake because it's hot. I know that. But I hope it will because it's about what is real faith. I'm going to use the title of your own uh, series, Religion God Accepts. But I, I, I personally would change that for my use this morning to true faith or real faith. What is the real deal? Have, have we got it? Do we know if we've got it? Can we know if we've got it? What is real faith? So we're going to look at it is religion God accepts. And we're going to look at James 5. And we're going, I'm going to read the whole thing. Uh, that may be a surprise to some of you, but that's what I tend to do. Because I think the word of God itself has power and influence. It just washes through you. And if it does nothing else, it will clean your brain out a bit. Uh, and I hope there'll be a bit more to it than that. So let's just read verse 7 to the end of uh, James 5. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crop, patiently waiting for the autumn and spring rains, or early and latter rains, it says in some. You too be patient and stand firm, because the Lord's coming is near. Don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you'll be judged. The judge is standing at the door. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. As you know, we count as blessed those who have persevered. You have heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you will be condemned. Is anyone among you in trouble? Let them pray. Is anyone happy? Let them sing songs of praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, or the prayer offered in faith, will make the sick person well, and the Lord will raise them up. If they've sinned, they'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Elijah was a human being, even as we are. A weak man, I think is the implication. He had weaknesses. We'll talk about that later. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. 
My brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's an amazing sort of end to this book. And it ends a bit abruptly, as you'll see. We'll get there in a moment. It's not like some of the other letters where you get a bit more of a gentle breakdown and greetings and all the rest of it. And it's a little bit of a mixed bag. But I feel in these last verses, God's got three things that I want to talk to you about this morning, which are vital for you to understand about real faith, true faith. We're going to talk about perseverance, prayer, and preservation. Three Ps, and it fits very neatly. So let's start off with perseverance, which is drawing from the first chunk of what I read. Really, we're not going to reread it, but really verses 7 to 11. Now, you'll know from your study of James, I would think, I'm sure you do, that he gives a lot of attention to what is the evidence of real faith, true faith. So here's one little example, famous bit. You can go up, thanks. James 2, 17 to 18. He says, in the same way, faith by itself, if it's not accompanied by action, is dead. Someone will say, you have faith, I have deeds. Show me your faith without deeds and I will show you my faith by my deeds. So he's making quite a strong point there that you won't have real faith, authentic faith in Jesus, that has no evidence in your life. It's not outworked in any way by actions. Real faith will work out in some actions. Now, this is an important fact. This is all about fundamental Christian stuff. So I want you to, and it's relevant to every one of us, including me, as I read it and study it. Let's remember this stuff. You are saved by faith alone. You are not saved by your works. You cannot be. It's not your performance that saves you. It's Jesus' performance on the cross, dying for you, the perfect son of God, bearing your sins in his own body on the cross. You put faith in that and you are justified, just as if I'd never sinned. You are cleansed by the blood of the lamb. You raised up with him. That's what your baptism was about. His death was my death. His burial was my burial. His resurrection is my resurrection. I now live a new life in him. But there's another half to the truth. We are saved by faith alone, but faith that is alone is not real faith. So faith that doesn't, isn't anything other than an intellectual believism is not, in the Bible's terms, real faith. James has been making that very clear. Faith works out. It must have an impact on your life. It will have an impact on your life. Jesus talked about something similar. We're going to have a lot of verses, but you haven't got to turn to them because Jan or someone's going to faithfully flick them up for me. Matthew 7. This is Jesus. By their fruit, you will recognize them. Do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Likewise, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. And Jesus loved to use organic images. He loved to use pictures from what was around him in the, in the natural world, which you've already remember, remembered this morning is something to provoke our praise and worship. And Jesus said, well, you know, you can tell a f- tree by its fruit. I mean, Brian's got a brilliant garden. It's lovely. We were out there in the sun yesterday. He's shown us the fig trees he's got. And the, what was it? And you've got peaches, nectarines. I didn't know they grew in this country. You manage to grow all sorts of things there, don't you? And he got all sorts. I asked him if he got a coconut palm, but that wasn't a coconut palm, was it? No. And, and, 
And he's got all these things in his garden, but you really tell them by their fruit, don't you? And actually, if he's got one of these trees and it's sick and diseased and it's not really alive, it won't fruit. And so there's an organic reality that if you've got real faith in Jesus, if you've got the Holy Spirit in you, if you've got new life, new heart, new creation, all the wonderful, wonderful things you're promised in Jesus, there must be some evidence for it. There's got to be something. You can't have all that happen to you and it doesn't make any difference. Now, one aspect of that fruit, one part of that fruit is perseverance. And that's what we're going to take a few minutes thinking about. One part of that fruit is perseverance. James has already referred to it. If you could put up James 1, at the beginning of his letter, he wrote this. Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance, let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. One of the fruits of real faith is perseverance. Now, we need to take a moment or two to work out what that is about, because there's quite a strong biblical link between faith and perseverance. It comes out quite a bit. And even here, James indicates that, really. He refers to some Old Testament saints, and he particularly refers to Job in verse 11, which is quite an interesting one. I personally find Job really helpful and encouraging. You don't find it a great book when you first look at it, but when you dig into it, there's a lot in it. We did a series on Job back in Winchester last year, and I really enjoyed my part in preparing for it. I wasn't the only one preaching on it. But Job is helpful because I think there is a reality about Job that is quite reassuring, and I find it reassuring, and it, it helps us to get what real perseverance means. What does it mean, real faith perseveres? Well, you see, there's two words used here, patience and perseverance, in the James passage. And he uses perseverance particularly for Job. I'm no Greek scholar, but actually there are two different words in Greek like they are in English. Patience and perseverance are two different things. They're not... Let's take a moment. Patience, generally speaking, and most of us would agree with this, carries with it the idea of self-restraint, that you're not going to make a hasty reaction to things. You're not going to just emotionally you know, sound off. You're not going to retaliate against a wrong done to you. It's, in biblical terms, it's like a fruit of the Spirit. And to be honest, we all want it and need it. But it's that little bit more like you're not going to retaliate, you're, you're going to be careful what you say, not hasty to speak. That's sort of a bit built into the word. Now, perseverance is a little more um, narrow almost. It is just about pressing on and not giving up. It's about you don't give up even when the going gets tough. And in a way, perseverance is a fruit of real faith. It shows you've got real faith. Now, I want both. I want to show patience and perseverance. But I'll be honest with you, I'm not great on patience. God's still working on me. And I know I lack it. And I know it's a fruit of the Spirit. And I, I've, I lack it in my dealings with all sorts of things. And Marion will reinforce the truth of this testimony, that it is probably an area where I am still lacking what I'd love to see, more Christ-like patience. But I would dare to say that I have been better at perseverance. That's why I'm here after being a Christian for over 40 years. I would dare to say that, maybe over 50 years actually, uh, um, oh dear, <laughs> I, I would say perseverance 
is an important fruit. Now, why is Job encouraging? Because he is a great example of perseverance, and he's not such a great example as of patience in the pure sense of the word. I know people talk about the patience of Job because of the old translation of the AV, but to be honest with you, he's a particularly good example of perseverance. He does show patience, of course, but when you actually read the book, he's very honest, he's very emotional, and Job suffers all these huge tragedies in his life. Then his friends come to comfort him, and they start quite well for about the first week. And then they get into, well, this couldn't happen to a really godly person, so there must be a reason why this has happened to you, Job. And then they start going into the reasons, his lack of faith, his sin, his hidden sin, his hypocrisy, the fact he's not been as good with God as he looks. And, and they get really nasty, and in the end he has rows with them, and he gets pretty sarcastic. He's, he's pretty, oh, yeah, yeah, you know, wisdom will die when you lot die. You read it for yourself. That's what he says. And then he, he wishes he'd never been born. I wish I'd never been born. Curse the day I was born. He's not very patient. But, and, and, and then he says, I, I'd like to die. You know, he's all sorts of stuff. He really does sometimes get quite angry and frustrated with his friends and almost, you could say, well, you can say, with God as well. And so he's not really patient in that classic sense. But... Job never gives up on God. He hangs on in there, even in his crying dark days, he hangs on to God. He doesn't curse God and die, as his wife encourages him to do. He doesn't do it. He never abandons his faith in God. In the midst of his incomprehension as to what God is doing in his life and why this is happening to him, he still clings on to God in hope and in expectation and in faith. And there's some brilliant shiny bits of faith in the book of Job where he believes stuff that's remarkable that one day he'll see God face to face he'll have a physical resurrection and it's amazing stuff for such an ancient book but it's full of wonderful things but but in it there's an awful lot of raw suffering and and pain that comes through so actually this is what you need to get Job is a good example of real faith and God commends Job at the end of the book God Breaks in after the comforters have said all sorts of crazy things. He breaks in. And actually, God doesn't agree with everything Job says. He gets in Job's face a bit and says, what are you talking about? You know, who are you? Where were you when the world was made? That sort of thing. You can read it. But he then turns to the comforters and says, you're wrong. This guy's good. He's got faith. That's what he says. He commends Job for his steadfastness and his faith. Now, Job never gets intellectual answers to his questions. He never gets the answer to, why did this happen to me? Now, he might have done later, I don't know, because we get the insights that are written at the beginning about Satan but, and Satan's part in it, because he has a part in it. But actually, in the real story of Job's life, do you know where he ends up? He ends up worshipping. You can read it for yourself. It's Job 42. We're not going to read this one because there's too many scriptures. Job 42, verses 1 to 6. It's, he doesn't end up saying, now I know why this all happened. He ends up saying, now I know him, God. Now, that's what happens to real people with real faith. You don't get all the answers there's a lot of mystery. There's a lot of pain. You might be crying and shouting, but you end up worshipping. You end up saying, but for all that, I know God. And in fact, I know God more now than I did at the beginning, which is what Job says. He says, now I really see it. You can read it for yourself. It takes 42 chapters. It's quite long. But basically, that's where he gets to. 
Now that is real faith. Real faith never gives up. Real faith doesn't feel good all the time. Real faith doesn't even say the right things all the time. Real faith does not suffer and does not complain and even question, but it doesn't throw it away. And he's still there at the end and he's worshipping at the end and trusting God. That's a sign of true faith. Let's move on. That's perseverance. Let's move on to prayer, which is in the verses 13 to 18. Now, James is punchy and direct. You've seen that. He's a very direct writer. And he says, true faith responds to trouble by praying. True faith responds to blessing by praising. In other words, fundamentally, real faith means you have a sort of God-centered view of life. Again, we're not talking about floating along in a cloud. Oh, God bless you. Yes, I never troubled. It's not that. It's when you're in trouble, you pray. Okay? That's where faith goes. You don't drive. I mean, you may have your bad moments like Job, but ultimately you think, God, your answer somewhere in you. So when you're in trouble, you pray. And when things go well, you don't just think how smart I am, how lucky I am. You think, thank you, God. Because you are aware of God. You're sort of aware that he is in charge of everything. Now, it is a feature then of real Christians, real faith, to pray. So here's a couple of little verses, if Jan can put them up. One's from Thessalonians, one's from, Luke's, uh, from Jesus' words in Luke. In Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 5.17, he says, pray continually. Don't worry if you can't get it all up. I'm, I've got loads of these. <laughs> he says, pray continually. We're not going to put them all up. Pray continually. And then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So Jesus is saying, if you're one of my disciples, always keep praying and never give up. That's good, isn't it? Now, I think you think, well, John, is it as simple as that? Well, let's, let's give it a moment or two. If you look at Ephesians, so Jan's got another one to find, bless her. If you look at Ephesians 6.18, there are all sorts of ways of praying. Pray in the Spirit on all occasions, all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert, always keep on praying for all the Lord's people. You see, praying is not just like giving grace before a meal, coming to church and making a great statement, which I'm not belittling that, a public prayer or going to, through a more formal system in some church, or, or just the five minutes in the morning. Those are all, all aspects of prayer. But prayer is much more than that. It's talking to God. It's just bringing him into everything. It's, so, it's like, God, is this the right thing to do? Well, I mean, you think, well, I don't always get an answer, no, but I sort of talk to him. Now, I personally talk to God a lot, but I don't actually think I'm very good at what we might call formal prayer. I do have a quiet time in the morning, you'll be reassured to hear. But, I mean, I do quite like reading the Bible, so that's me, you know, it's a bit one of my funny things. So I tend to spend longer on that than I do on praying, and I sort of pray as I read it and talk to God about it. What's that all about? Don't usually get to give me an answer. Well, he might give me a thought, and I'll go and find out. But I, I, I also praise God and pray. Um, so I'm reading through Proverbs. I'm in the last two chapters of Proverbs. Yesterday was it, or whatever day, and I'm reading it. And oh, I was thanking God for my wife. I got to the noble woman, uh, and she's better than rubies. And so you, you begin to pray for your family out of the but. But then you know, 
you know, you could pray for us crazy things as please give me a parking place, to, which is a bit trivial, isn't it? But you'd still do it. And, and you know, and just ask for help, for healing. Basically, you pray continually. <laughs> You're talking and sharing your life with God. And I think that's a sign of life in you. And Paul says in Philippians 4, don't be anxious, but actually bring your requests to God. So when you're worried about something, when something's troubling you, yeah, of course, I'm, I'm a bit of a worrier, so I don't say I don't worry, but ultimately it's something I pray about almost always because that's, you turn your worry into a prayer. You sort of, and sometimes it's a bit worrying with God, which is not a great idea. So you need to turn it into a bit more focus. But, but to be honest, I see a few heads nodding. Do you not pray quite a lot? More than you realise, I think. I think it's not just the formal stuff. But be encouraged. You may feel, oh, I don't know what I'm like. Well, if you're a person who prays, you've got faith. If it's not just a formal occasionally, or you could say, I've got a whole week and never think about it. That might be a bit worrying. I'll help you with your worries in a minute. But, but actually, I think a sign of real faith is that you talk to God. You walk with him and talk with him. You pray. Now, James actually unpacks this one a bit more because he then talks about the prayer of faith. And James places a high value on this sort of praying. So a couple of quick verses Chapter 5, verse 15. The prayer offered in faith makes the sick person well. The Lord raises them up. Then you, if you go back to the first chapter of James, he tells us a bit more. James 1, 6 and 7. He says, this is single-minded prayer. When you ask, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, blown and tossed. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. Chapter 4, he's concerned about people who pray with wrong motive. When you ask, verse 2 to 3, you do not receive because you ask with the wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. So the actual prayer of faith, which I think is a particular sort of prayer, it's more to do with intercession, praying for the sick, praying for provision, praying for breakthrough. James is quite clear. You need to be pretty clear. You need to be single-minded. This is not just chatting with God. And you need to be careful about your motive. But actually, the prayer of faith is very powerful and brings breakthrough. But there are lots of sorts of prayer. I mean, you can have a prayer of uh, consecration which personally, I think, is what Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. See, I don't think Jesus is praying a prayer and he's not got enough faith to be saved from the cross. I think he's praying, battling emotionally, and then committing himself to the Father's will, whatever. But I also don't think that that is a model for every sort of prayer in every situation, the prayer of the Garden of Gethsemane. Might get more from the Lord's Prayer if we're looking for models. We just need to be smart about prayer not all prayer we all have faith in God but not all prayer is the prayer of faith and James is quite interested in that he's quite interested in people praying effectively and getting breakthrough and seeing things happen and actually to support that he gives us the example of Elijah which will take a moment over because he then unpacks this prayer of faith from Elijah by the way I think those prayers of praise and worship prayers of just rest and trust because we're talking with God but actually there is and we need to be encouraged by this a power in prayer which we can use and real Christians can move the hand of God with a prayer of faith And that's what Elijah appears to do. And we'll see about that. Let's think about it for a moment. 
So he refers to Elijah, James, and he says he was human, or in his implication is that he was imperfect, because Elijah, Elijah was. If you read the story of Elijah, one minute he's bold as a lion, and the next minute he's scared rigid. He's up on the Mount Caramel, 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 oh, sorry, Caramel, Caramel would be nice, wouldn't it? Do they have those with the coffee afterwards? Mount Caramel, uh, oh dear, sorry, the Caramel distracted me there, um, and He's, he's a, 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 a lion, you know, he's dealing with all the Baal prophets, they're marvellous. But within a day, at the most, he is running for his life, scared by Jezebel. Nasty bit of work, but one woman, all right, she had power, but he's just dealt with all these other people, and, he, and he's scared. He's, he's, in, he's changeable. And you find him actually praying the suicide prayer, which you find Job praying, and Moses actually, Lord, take my life. Even great men of God get that low. And Elijah gets that low. He doesn't finish his life off. But he says, God, I'd like you to take me. I'm fed up. I'm useless. And yet, James said, he's a mighty man of prayer. Because he was a mighty man of prayer. And we need to learn a few lessons from him. When he first appears on the scene, it's in Kings, 1 Kings 17.1. And if Jan's able to, she pop it up. When he first, first appears on the scene, it says this. Now, Elijah the Tish, Tish, oh dear, 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 I can't say it. Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, as the Lord, the God of Israel lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. That's pretty courageous. That's bold. And he comes up to this nasty king and he says, there's not going to be any rain until I say so. You think, wow, how did he do that? Well, James actually, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that that came out of prayer. He prayed it wouldn't rain, and then later he prays it, does, it will rain, and you'll see that later too if you read the story. So we're not told that in the Old Testament, so that's interesting. So, so Elijah didn't come out of the blue just thinking, I've got a great idea, I'm going to go and say there's no rain. He, that decision, that was rooted in a faith prayer. And he said, how does that? Well, faith prayers are rooted in the Bible, in the word of God, where you pray back God's word to him. You get hold of God's word and you begin to tussle with it in prayer. And I believe Elijah was that sort of prayer. He was a man who knew God. He talked in this, this verse we've just read about the living God whom I serve. Isn't that a beautiful way of describing you? I know the living God. I serve the living God. Now, that meant he trusted God's word, and he would have read what was his Bible. And his Bible would have included what we call the Pentateuch, the first five books, and Deuteronomy. Now, if you read Deuteronomy several times, it says things like this. I'll give you one example. Deuteronomy 11, verses 16 and 17, which Jan will put up. Remember, this is part of Elijah's Bible. God warns Israel, be careful or you are enticed to turn away and worship other gods and bow down to them. Then the Lord's anger will burn against you and he will shut the heavens so that it will not rain and the ground will yield no produce and you will soon perish from the good land the Lord is giving you. And that comes out several times. You could read it again, something rather similar, which we won't, of course, in chapter 28. So Elijah knew his Bible. And he knew his country was now in a terrible state. I think we don't even understand how bad it was sometimes, even we Christians. Ahab and Jezebel had made Baal worship the official religion of Israel 
and had, in a sense, made illegal worshipping Yahweh, the God. I mean, it was that bad. They had made Baal worship the official religion. And something clicked in Elijah and he got on his knees and he prayed and he got this scripture and he said, God, you said we'd give us a drought if we went like this. I want you to give a drought to the nation. And God said to him, that's going to happen. That must have been what happened. So he went to Ahab and he said, it's not going to rain. It's not going to rain until I say so. And he knew he was going to say so when in God he realised something had broken spiritually, which does happen after Mount Carmel, not Carmel, after Mount Carmel. And then you will find him praying for rain. It doesn't just happen. It's a wonderful story. He's praying earnestly and looking for the clouds until rain comes. So this is not random. This is word-based prayers of faith. Now, real Christians learn to pray prayers of faith based on God's word. Now, you cannot learn that and still be a Christian and go to heaven. But if you really have faith, you understand that God loves to do what he's promised to do. And he loves to do what his word says he'll do. And so you get like Elijah. You don't have to be perfect because he wasn't. But you've got hold of something. You think, oh, God, this is God's word. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray it back to him. Amen? Oh, I'm enjoying this, even if you're not. I hope you are. So, real faith takes God's word seriously and has a characteristic of prayer. And finally, I want to talk about preservation. And this is an interesting one. And really, to talk about it, I almost need to remind you the last two verses, because it's a little bit of a, a gear change, slightly. Uh, it's funny, isn't it? But it's sort of like, whoa, it's a bit jerky sometimes, the Bible. You think, right, okay, now we're talking about something else, right? So that's what's happening now. So the last two verses, my brothers and sisters, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring that person back, remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of their ways will save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Now, there is a doctrine, which I believe which is called the preservation of the saints. The preservation of the saints. Lovely, good old-fashioned way of putting it. And what it means is this. True faith never dies. True faith never dies. Real Christians have been born again of the Spirit. And actually, God started this, not you. You were dead in your sins, and he made you alive. And if God's brought you to birth, he's not going to kill you off again. God is not in the habit of saying, bring them alive. Oh, no, kill them again. Oh, bring them alive again. Oh, kill them again. That is not how it works. You will be preserved by God. He began this and he will finish it. God is the author and finisher of your faith. That's good, isn't it? That's very, very good and reassuring and very important. However, It does not mean that life's journey is smooth and trouble-free. And I hear an amen or two in the congregation. Of course it doesn't. But it's a little more serious than that. It probably is not true to be able to say that everyone who professes faith has real faith. In other words, you can tell me you've got faith, but only God really knows. Sorry, I keep looking at you. Never mind. That's one of the dangers of the front row. (laughs) You know, I can hear what you say and I will trust what you say, but only God knows your heart. 
And even in the inner circle of Jesus, there were two interesting characters to compare. One was Judas Iscariot, the other's Peter. And when Jesus said, one of you will betray me, did you notice, or do you notice, if you know the Bible, all the other disciples didn't go, oh, that's going to be Judas. I've always thought he's a bad one. No, they said, is it me? Is it me? They had not a clue which one was going to betray him. And if you look from the outside, yeah, Judas was pretty awful. Peter didn't do well, did he? I mean, he goes into the trial and he swears and curses and says he's never known Jesus. So who's, what's the difference? Well, there is a difference. Jesus said, one of you is a devil. I have chosen you, but one of you is. There was one that wasn't real. And then with hindsight, when they write the Gospels, many of them said, well, he always had his hand in the till. He was taking the money all the time. Judas, that is. But Peter's performance was pretty rough. I mean, he often opened his mouth and put his foot in it. And Jesus told him off more times than he does Judas. And actually, in the end, the touching, moving end is in John 21. When Peter's on the beach, broken man, he's let Jesus down. And Jesus says to Peter, do you love me? And Peter ultimately says, well, you know I love you. Well done. Now feed my sheep. And it's, it's like, it's heart. It's all about heart. It's not about performance because there's not a lot of difference. But there's something different inside. And, and actually, real faith not only perseveres, but is preserved. And somehow we get through because there's something of life in us. Now, this incident here in James, he refers to, is very telling and very interesting. He says, one of you. So the implication is that a member of the church, a member of the community of faith wanders away from the faith. The language suggests possibly false teaching, wandering from the truth, and it links it, it seems, to sin, because the person's called a sinner. So we could be talking about losing the plot with truth, or we could be talking about that and sin, because soberly and sadly, I have noticed as a pastor over the years, that wandering from the faith doesn't usually stay intellectual. It usually ends in sin. And I've sadly seen a number of people over the years who who claim an intellectual problem. Having been with the church for a long time, well, I'm not sure I believe it. I'm not sure God could send people to hell. I'm not sure this. I'm not sure about that. And what about this? And not before long you find that actually they're in quite serious sin, having an affair or into something they shouldn't be into. And and often the two go together. That's my experience. I'll share it with you as a challenge and and a sobering thing. So they're all a bit mixed together. But there's some good news here because he says, if one of you wanders or gets into sin or both, then he said, others of you, and he's not talking about pastors and teachers and elders. He's again using very general terms. He uses someone. I've got it, wrote it down or, or whoever. He uses very general terms. He's saying other members of the, of the church need to pray for them by implication and go after them. Try and win them back. Realize that God will be working with you. Don't give up on them. Don't give up on them. Go after them. Now, I want to be very clear. You're either a child of God or you're not. There's a verse I've got here in John, uh, for, for, for John's 1, which just reminds you of that. To all who did receive Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born of not a natural descent, nor of a human decision, or of a husband's will, born of God. And I want to say you're either born of God or you're not. 
You're either, and you're not born of God because of your performance. Your conduct does not determine the relationship. The relationship is determined by the work of God. It's not a conduct-based thing. The grace of God saved you. And your conduct is not what makes you a child of God. We all have, those of us who have the privilege of having children, have had children who have not behaved perfectly all through their lives. I think I remember just once or twice, one of my children might have done something wrong. I'm being sarcastic, I'm sorry. Uh, of course they did. So, but they were always my kids. Their conduct didn't mean they fell in and out of being my kids. They were my flesh and blood. So you're born of the Spirit, and that's not... But that's not then a factor of conduct. But your relationship affects your conduct. So my dear children, and they are very dear to me, would have been affected by me, what I said, what I taught, what, what they grew up with in our family, hopefully for good, most of it, some of it maybe not so. But basically the relationship affected the conduct. So you, there's a sort of two-sided... Have I lost you? I think I've lost a few of you. There's a two-sided... I've got too excited about this. Basically... You are made a Christian by the work of God. It's not your conduct. But when you are a Christian, it will affect your conduct. Does that make more sense? Good. I've got some of you back. Right. So that's just a little by the way, (laughs) but very, very important. The reality is you can be a child of God and not behave very well like a child of God. And then you might well experience the discipline of God because he disciplines his children. And that is not always comfortable. And what I can say to you is he will chase after you. It might take a long time, but he will get you in the end. Because if you're his, you are his forever. And the best answer, here's a little tip, is work with him all the time. If you get all rebellious and weird and awkward as a Christian, you're going to have a miserable time. I tell you, you are. Because he, he is determined to bring you through and bring you back. Now, G- James is sort of blunt and practical. You see, we like, and I like, to philosophize. We all like to go, well, this lapsed brother or sister, were they really a Christian or not? That's what I want to know. Well, yeah, that's not the answers you get. You know, they may have been a lapsed real Christian who then in the misery of their lives turn back to God. But they might have been a false professor who just knew the words and didn't really believe it, then chucked it over. But when they're out there, God's still chasing them and they remember the gospel and they turn and get saved. That's both can happen. Doesn't really matter, does it? From our point of view, that's only God knows the difference. We have to help them and pray for them. You should never give up on people who we call backslide and wander away. We don't want to worry about the academic stuff. We want the real thing. Let me end with two verses that uh, are, are, are going to be put up. Here's one from 1 Thessalonians. And I believe it reinforces the fact that if you are once saved, you are always saved. God's got his hand on you more than you've got your hand on him. So Paul says, may God himself, the God of peace, sanctify you through and through. May your whole spirit, soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. The one who calls you, that's God, is faithful and he will do it. So when you get to heaven, 
I get, will get to heaven, when I meet Jesus, I won't be able to go, do you know what? I'm here because I've got a real strong willpower. I'm, 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 I'm quite a good guy. I'm pretty tough. So all I had temptations, in the end, I came through. Whew. So I'm here and he's not because I've got more strength of mind. Of course I'm not. That's rubbish. I'm only going to be there because of his grace. Because he got me there. I was death and dead in my sins. I've been a mess. I've let him down as a Christian, even as a Christian leader, I've let him down. And he still mercifully got me there. Disciplined me, shaken me up, got the right person speaking to me at the right time, giving me a kick up the backside when I needed it, and got me there. And honestly, that is the truth. It's very reassuring, but there's also that little little frisson of, of challenge, isn't there? You need to make sure that your faith is real. How do I do that? Well, do you continue to persevere? Do you keep pressing on even when it's tough? I think some of you do. I've known some of that, looking at some of you. That's good. Be encouraged. Do you turn to God when you're in trouble? Do you get a sort of, not every time, do you get a sort of God-centered thing to your life you realize in the end he's in charge in the end he provides I don't quite know why he hasn't provided more but I know it comes from him you know whatever you do do a job but you basically know God is the answer that's encouraging and let me say God started this and God will finish it you didn't get in this because you're clever because you worked something out because you were sensible enough to accept the truth of the gospel something of the spirit of God wakened in your heart and mind And the light went on one day, and you got it. And that was the grace and mercy of God. Then you responded to that, which you needed to do, and you've got to keep walking humbly with your God right through to the end. And keep saying, Lord, keep me and take me through. Last verse is from Hebrews, if I could put it up. Because we have a chance to help each other. That's what comes out in James. And here it is in Hebrews, or if it isn't, don't worry about it. In Hebrews, it says, Hebrews 10, verses 24, 25. Let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Don't worry if we don't find it. That's not important. The important thing is to realize, like James said, we all have a part to play in helping each other to keep going. Now, you can say, is this saying you should be a busybody? Not really. But in a way, you should be concerned for other people. I hope you show them love. Don't just go and wag your finger in their face. But you pray for and care for those who are wandering away. And you, you don't just shrug. You don't shrug it off. You try to spur one another on. You think how you could do it. So you think about it. Consider it. You, you actually exhort one another not to give up meeting together. You encourage one another because you're looking for a bigger day when Jesus comes back and you want us all to be there. So Jesus does the work of keeping people on track, but he will use you as his arms and his mouth and his presence to do it. Never give up on a backslider. Never might be a husband, a wife, it might be a child, it might be a friend. Keep praying, keep looking for the grace of God in their lives. Amen? Let's stand together. Let's stand together as we finish. Thank you, Lord. <laughs> Praise God. It's good to talk about the real stuff. And, I, and that obviously touches reality in our lives. Um, 
Now, it, won't need, it doesn't need a prophetic gift to know there'll be people in this room who've got backsliding friends and relatives who they'd be concerned for. And I don't want to leave you with a pressure that you've got to do it. It's God will do it, but he might use you. But what you want to do is pray, God, is there a way I can help? And we could even pray for you this morning. So as we finish, I'd like to, we probably have prayer people, do we? Prayer team. I'd like to pray with people who are concerned about a brother or sister who has wandered from the faith. Okay, let's be real practical. And someone will pray with you this morning for them and maybe pray that God will do something just to win them back soon. Amen? So we're going to do that. Also in this book we've read, the bit we read, he talked about healing. Now, he didn't just say the elders. He said, pray for one another. And there were lots of implications I didn't have time to unpack. You know, James clearly expected that churches would pray for the sick, that it would be a normal thing to do, that all sorts of people, elders and others, would do it. And he expected them to get healed because he said they will be healed. Now, I know we don't see everybody healed, but that was his expectation. This is not something just in the book of Acts. This is practical teaching for church life. So if you need healing, come forward and someone will pray with you and pray and ask for someone for, for, your, for your healing. And let me, the third category, you might yourself be a backslider. I don't know who some of you are this morning. A few I know, of course. If you've been away from the Lord and nowhere with God for a long time, come forward. Nobody will know which is which when they come forward, but you come forward and tell the person who prays for you, I want to come back to Jesus this morning. If you're in that category, or if you've never come to Jesus, don't worry about whether you did or didn't. Come this morning. Amen? Come this morning. So if we could just have the band up. Sorry, I should have asked you earlier. As they play us the last song, I'd like anybody in those categories, praying for a, a backslidden relative friend, praying for healing, or if you yourself feel, I want to get back on track with God, or I'd love to come and meet God for the first time, then you come forward as well, and we'll pray with you. Is that okay, Paul? Great. Do you want to come up and join me? Yeah, it'd be great. If you're um, part of the ministry team, can I just invite you to come down just onto the right hand, left-hand side of the stage, you're right. That would be brilliant. Can we just give John a round of applause for, for that? We want to take a moment then just to, just to respond. And um, if you want to respond to any of those three areas, then please, just as the band are going to start to play um, a song, then I would just want to invite you to come down and uh, see one of the ministry team. The ministry team will have a ministry team badge on and um, just begin to...